We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello, I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And welcome to the final monthly Doctor Who show for 2022. Coming out a week early so we don't drop this on Christmas Day itself. And look, we've got a very fun show for you today. Rob, how are you? Dave, I'm very well. I'm I'm already, I mean, I'm still at work at the moment, but I'm in that downhill run where you just know the holidays are a-coming. <laughs> yeah, I am, I'm in that sort of fortnight of before you're allowed to go on holiday, you have to have a Christmas catch-up with everybody. Yep. And uh, the diary just looks kind of absurd, but, but, but the good kind of absurd, but I can see several weeks of summer nothingness coming over the horizon, and that's really informing our topic for this month. We were thinking, what should we do in December? And we thought, well, the whole Northern Hemisphere is about to have their Christmas break. Mm. The Southern Hemisphere, where we are, is about to launch into one of those wonderful summers where the whole country just shuts down for four or five weeks. And so we thought, let's talk about those Doctor Who shows that don't get a lot of love, maybe are forgotten, maybe neglected, and deserve a second chance. So all of our listeners who are going on holiday and are wondering, what am I going to watch? Well, they can maybe give some of these shows a second chance. Yeah, and by Doctor Who shows, we don't mean our own podcast. No, no, <laughs> Doctor Who stories, Doctor Who stories. Very good. Now, two weeks ago from when this drops, we did release our review of Andor, which we planned as a 25 to 30 minute little (laughs) special, and it was about a 55 to an hour special, but I think we were very passionate and had a lot to say. Yeah, and I've, I've really appreciated the feedback we've got on that one, and yeah, from my point of view, it was just such a pleasure to sit down and talk about it, because it was such a good series. Yeah, absolutely. So if you haven't checked that out and you're interested, please do. Mm. Now, Rob, we're about to launch into our news segment, but since we made the show notes, uh, we had news breaking today, in fact, this morning, something mm. we woke up to, and it is it is quite sad news, and that is the death of former Doctor Who writer Chris Boucher. Now, we don't highlight every death on the Doctor Who show. Hardly any, actually. No, no, but this is this is one that I think... Uh, I certainly know I wanted to briefly highlight at the top of the show because he is one of my favourite television writers, not just favourite Doctor Who writers, but a favourite television writer of mine. And it is it is sad to hear that he has passed away. He wrote, in my opinion, three classic Doctor Who stories. And look, some people love Image of the Fendale, others don't. Some people love The Face of Evil more than others. Mm. Uh, I think they're all classic, but I think pretty much everybody agrees that the Robots of Death is a genuine contender as a top 10 Doctor Who story. A banger. It's an absolute banger, and a lot of that's down to his writing. He was, of course, the script editor on Blake 7, which is a favourite show of mine, and just the dialogue that he had there was just absolutely superb. He was the showrunner and creator of Star Cops, worked on a number of different series, but look, his ability to world build and create characters and just have witty clever dialogue 
I think was absolutely up there with Robert Holmes. I'd put it up with, with somebody like a, Russell T Davies or a Stephen Moffat. I think it's a great shame he didn't have a greater career. I think it's a great shame he didn't get to script it at Doctor Who. I, I imagine Chris Boucher's dialogue uh, being written for the sixth Doctor, for Colin Baker, and mm. gee, wow, that was a missed opportunity. Yeah, we've said several times on the podcast over many years what we lost by not having Chris script edit the show. It's just incalculable how, how good the show could have been with him in that role. Yeah, absolutely. Look, he, he was a protege of Robert Holmes, and he was very close to Robert Holmes, and I think that's a reflection of just how talented he was and the sort of writer he was. And so, look, I just wanted to say uh, at the top of the show, very sad to hear of Chris Boucher's passing. Yeah, while well, a Chris Boucher. On that note, though, we'll plunge into our anticipated news. Mm. Uh, the first item is mine. And, and Rob, we've been talking over a number of months on this show about how the calendar for the next year or so in Doctor Who has been a little bit wobbly and a mm. little bit, a little bit, bit fuzzy. Bit. Yeah, well, well, very vague, let's say. Let's put yeah. it that way. Uh, we now have a little bit of firm news that came out. Uh, Doctor Who magazine broke the news, and they quote Russell T. Davies as saying that there will be two Christmas specials, one in 2023 and one in 2024. The, the actual quote is, The 2023 script has been long since signed off. The new one is for the end of 2024. For the first time ever, I'm writing a Christmas special at Christmas. Mm. So, Rob, we now know we are getting a Christmas special. We now know we're getting a 60th anniversary special. We know we're getting two other episodes probably around there, but that's not confirmed, and a Christmas special in 2024. Yeah, so my big takeaway here is that Shooty debuts in a Christmas special, very similar to Tenant. So history repeats itself in so many ways with RTD. Yes, that's very true, actually. That's very true. So, yeah, look, things are starting to uh, come into shape, and we have a bit more news about the format of the series, not the timing, but the format of the series later on in the news. But in the meantime, Rob, you've got another little bit of new series news. I do. And just before I get to it, I'll also comment on that other story. I think there may have been a quote from Russell, if not in that story, then in something he's been saying recently, that it takes a while to sort of turn the ship around, but Doctor Who will be getting back on track and being a, you know, a yearly thing. I think eight episodes a year is the goal, and he's just going to start banging it out like he used to back in the good old days. So I am very excited about that. Yes, yes, eight episodes confirmed more or less, so that's a very good thing. Yeah. But my piece of news is uh, is something a lot less official than what uh, came out in the card of Pravda. This popped on Reddit around the 8th of December or so, so what would that be, 10 days prior to this episode dropping, because we're dropping this on the 18th. Yes, so 10 days ago, Dave, there was a leak on Reddit of a uh, console room for Shooty Gatwa. There was a short video where someone had quickly filmed what looked like a possibly unfinished TARDIS interior, or maybe it just wasn't fully lit up, so it didn't look quite ready. And there was also an image someone had taken of some concept art hanging up in the studio space. Now, I won't go into huge detail on either, as people can seek it out for themselves or not. Not that I think it's particularly spoilerific when it's just a console room, but I know how people can get touchy, so I'm just leaving it quite broad. But I will say, I like the look of what I see. It's not radically out of step with some of the previous modern console rooms, the good ones, I hasten to add, not that silly bloody yellow crab thing that Jody had. <laughs> and there's something in the corner 
Well, if a circular space can have a corner, that is, which I think is a really nice touch. It's way more interesting than a hat stand and could provide some ambience of its own. And I think I've said enough. Interesting. Now, I haven't seen the video clip. I couldn't easily find it. Oh. I I have seen the concept art, though. That was fairly widely shared and 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 like you i i like what they seem to be doing there i think it's an interesting take i think it's the correct take i don't know what was in the corner and maybe when we're off mic you might have to tell me that <laughs> i shall yes. yeah no please no um look what i've seen i like yeah no spoilers but roundels roundels are there <laughs> i saw roundels and it just looks like the kind of design where you say yes that is a console room it's not one I've ever seen before, but when I look at it, I say, yes, that is a console room. Unlike what we've had for the last five years, I say no more on that. Yes, and it certainly gave me the vibes of an era of the show that I'm very fond of. Not mm. necessarily the one that everyone will assume I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look, when it's official, we'll probably pull this out a little bit more. Yeah, if this pops in like Doctor Who magazine or something, we'll, we'll talk about it again. We absolutely will. Now, somebody else who's been doing a bit of talking is the current Doctor, David Tennant. Yes. Uh, And look, he was interviewed and just had some comments on what it's been like to come back to the role and any hesitations he had. And, And once again, I've pulled out a bit of a quote here. It was like being handed a very lovely present. It was joyous and great fun. It was a happy, joyous time 15 years ago, and returning to that could have been awkward or felt difficult. I might not have been able to run as fast, but we had a lovely time. Russell T. Davies was back running the show, and it felt like I'd never been away. So I find this interesting because it's always a risk if an actor goes back to a big, defining role. You look at, for example, a lot of the Star Trek actors, they were desperate to have nothing to do with the show until they sort of realised that that was sort of the way to come back into things and they could yeah. all, you know, have their comeback through, through Star Trek. And whereas, you know, others, including a number of Doctors, are like, no, no, I'm I'm staying away from Doctor Who until the, the offers start to maybe dry up a little bit and um, mm. you need a few more convention appearances and a bit more big finish money to just pad out the wages. Uh, am I being cynical? <laughs> maybe. So I think for the, for the fact that for the David Tennant, you know, for whom... He was breaking out when he got Doctor Who, but Doctor Who was the big worldwide breakout role, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. For him to sort of come back to the well, I think, was a risk, because it can look like, well, is David Tennant's career starting to plateau? Are the offers driving up? Is he not wanted in Hollywood? Now, I don't think that is the case, let me hasten to add. but No, I don't think so at all. But that's always the, a risk for a, a, an actor to go back to a role after 15 years. And so it was interesting to hear him sort of say that and, and, and to say that it was really that Russell T. Davies vibe and enthusiasm that carried him through any doubt. Yeah, I mean, I compare him to Capaldi. Now, Capaldi's been in the role a lot more recently, but I compare them from the point of view that they were both super fans. Well, I don't know if Tennant ever tried to take over the fan club <laughs> like Capaldi did, but they were both super duper fans. But I think it might be something of their personality in the decision that tenants like there's a chance to come back oh of course i'll come back (laughs) that'd be brilliant i almost did a 10th doctor impersonation then i didn't mean to but that's very tenant whereas capaldi's like no no i'm i'm i I did doctor who i love doctor who but i'm done with it now and i don't know whether capaldi's just bluffing until he gets a better offer or or until the offers dry up because he's having a really great career at the present time 
or whether it is just his personality that as much as I love Doctor Who, I've done it. I'm now five years older, whatever, than when I took the role. Well, actually a lot older than that. And that's why he doesn't want to do it. So it's like two big fans coming at it from totally different directions, Dave. Yeah, but but with similar sort of overarching views as well. And mm. in, in the same way, if suddenly they said, we're doing a revival of The Thick of It and Peter Capaldi's back to play Malcolm Tucker, you'd go, oh, okay, what's happening to his career? Yeah, and yet that's something I could see him doing before he does Doctor Who again. You see, I, th- I think it's less likely because really? because it is such an iconic role for him. I think it would be a much more public step backwards for him. It might all depend on the script. <laughs> Look, yeah. that's the case as well. And I'm sure that if um, Mr. Iannucci turned around and gave him a really fun script, look, maybe he'll be tempted. And look, maybe someone like Peter Capaldi is just so confident in his career now that he would say, you know, damn him, I'm going to do another round of Malcolm Tucker. But, and I think in, in, in modern days, it's actually a lot more possible to do that as well because there's so much more television and there isn't that same danger of being typecast. But hopefully you get the point I'm making that it's, Sometimes seen as a risk. Tennant certainly felt that way. You know, he certainly mm. felt that he was older than when he was, you know, the young, dashing 10th Doctor. But he seemed happy. Yeah, but look, just in general, just to... I know there's always a lot of lovey talk around actors and roles and, oh, it was great to work with this person again. Even when they frigging hated working with that person, they'll say it was great to work with that person. But in this case, I think it's genuine. He is just so excited to be back working with Russell. Russell's back in charge. And fandom is like that too, like, oh my god, Russell's back in charge. There are some naysayers on Twitter, but they're in the minority. Most people are really, really excited and stoked about this new era that's coming. Yes, no, it it is true. People generally don't do interviews about how much they didn't like working with somebody. Um, (laughs) Except for Kevin Smith and a very high-profile A-list Hollywood star that he's been very vocal about never wanting to speak to ever again. Uh, I won't name him just in case people don't want to know. Mm, yep. <laughs> one final piece from you, Rob. Yeah, final piece for me, Dave. Quick one. Uh, Shudi Gatwa has appeared in The List, which I believe is a Scotland-based uh, digital arts publication, and they put him at number one on its Hot 100 list. I guess it's that time of year where publications like to make lists, and so he's number one on the Hot 100 list. No bias there, I'm sure, with him being a Scot, <laughs> but it got a nice quote in the piece, uh, so bear with me on this. Uh, Shooty says, Prepping for the role of the Doctor and watching all the episodes again and watching Russell T Davies and David Tennant's work, I was overcome with the need to get the job. I was like, I want to work with Russell. His writing is so clever. I just felt very honoured that he saw something in me that he likes. He's going to take me to the universe around all the stars and galaxies. And he also says, it's just about learning to be really grateful and also to take the work seriously, but not yourself seriously. It's an amazing job that we get to do, but it is just a job. I'm slowly learning how to take it in my stride. And I think that's a great quote for two reasons, Dave. The tail end of it, the talking about taking the work seriously, but not himself seriously. I love that attitude. I seriously love that attitude. But prior to that, it's clear that he was studying the role and watching Tennant and RTD stuff at the very least, possibly even more, because he says he watched all the shows, to bone up for the role. And I thought, man, this is such a contrast to Chibnall telling Jodie, oh, don't watch the past stories. <laughs> I mean, to this day, I think that is such a ridiculous thing. And I will always bring it up if, uh, if appropriate. And I've said this on Twitter before. It's like casting a James Bond 
Dave and telling them, okay, sure, this is a really important role and it's got a big audience that expects a lot from it, but whatever you do, don't study up on it. Don't watch any of the old Bond films. No, no, no. I mean, it's just crazy. So I was very excited to see Shooty talking about having watched old episodes even before he was the Doctor. Yeah, it's a really nice thing to say. And 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 look, you're always a little bit cynical about some of these pronouncements and a little bit, you know, how, how contrived they are to sort of make sure that we have the right vibe coming out. But I think we've seen enough of Shooty now to know that there is a genuine enthusiasm for the role. It's certainly very believable that an actor who's really come of age during the time when Russell T Davies has been just writing hit after hit after hit that's been really big mainstream television in the UK, mm-hmm. you, you couldn't help but notice that as an up-and-coming actor and go, that's a writer that I want to work with. Yeah, I want to hitch my wagon to that guy, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very believable. and No, it is it is good. And yeah, what you say about Jodie is just, just bizarre. You know, I, I can understand cautioning an actor and saying, look, I'm going to get you to watch some things here. Now, be aware we want to do something different, but know what comes before because even if you want to do something different you've got to know what you're defining yourself against exactly and and the, and the same for bond don't watch pierce brosnan and then play pierce brosnan but watch pierce brosnan and and watch daniel craig and get a feel for what the audience has seen if you've not watched these get a feel for what the audience has seen what the audience knows and what the audience expects and then do your own thing within that boundary this oh don't watch it and just bring your own thing to the role oh no 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 absolutely and you've got to credit actors with the ability to say okay i've just watched patrick troughton and i love the way he did it now i'm not going to go out there and do a patrick troughton impression but i want to pull that part of what he did i want to pull that tone from what he did or you mm. might watch a bit of tom baker and you just go look a lot of this is just not me i can't do tom baker but but that thing he does that particular thing he does I want to kind of pull that out. That's that's really helpful. Or you might watch a doctor and go, this is how I don't want to be, and I'm going to play in opposite to that. Well, here is something that uh, Pertwee did that I found quite amusing. Can we slip that same thing into one of my episodes? Yeah. Because the fans will say, oh, that's just great. You know, just, just that little bit of knowledge here and there. It goes a, such a long way. Yeah, so look, whether it's cynically contrived by a press department or not... It's certainly working and getting me excited for the uh, the coming of the 15th Doctor. Oh, me too. I'm really excited. Like, I, I, I don't want to just keep gushing and, and just fanboy over it all, but I am the most excited about Doctor Who for a long time. Not just the Chibnall era, even back in the Capaldi era. I was looking forward to his era ending. I didn't know how good his final season would be, but as we were going into it, I was ready for it to end there. So this is... This is years i haven't felt like this dave you know six seven years maybe no it's very cool it's very very cool we're looking forward mm. to it on to short topics look i've got a couple of things i just want to mention briefly and i'll do it sort of under the one umbrella of what i've been doing in doctor who world lately i did enjoy so much watching season 15 back for our last monthly episode mm-hmm. that i did go and put on the ribos operation i thought i'm just going to keep going and i am just very slowly working my way through season 16 and continuing to enjoy it it really is a season that is so fun and so enjoyable it's got a number of stories i certainly didn't get as a kid but love now uh Ryboss operation is one power of crawl in some ways is one androids mm. of tara is definitely one uh yeah. seeds of doom I, I loved at all ages 
so yeah, no, that's that's been good. I've been enjoying season sixteen. And if you want my more in depth thoughts on it, go back to when we did a monthly deep dive into season sixteen. Yes, because we've done those two seasons now, fifteen and sixteen as deep dives. They are the only two times we've done, but it's those two. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing, just to mention, is that something arrived in the post a couple of days ago, and that is the Doctor Who and the Daleks: The Official Story of the Films by John Walsh. I saw this online up for purchase and I thought I'm going to have this it was a little bit pricey as these big hardbacks are to get out to Australia but when it arrived my goodness it is one of the most sumptuous and wonderful and detailed books that I have ever seen in relation to the show and it reminds me of back in the 90s when there was a phenomenon going on in Doctor Who merchandise that my friend Richard really talks about quite in depth and quite passionately where all of these people who'd grown up with the show were now old enough to make the merchandise they'd always wanted yeah and you got those really just passionately made reference books and hardcover books and 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 the like and this doctor who and the daleks film book feels like that it feels like a genuine labor of love the graphics the photos the material the behind the scenes stuff most of his stuff I have never seen before. It goes into a lot of detail, but it's very, very well written. As I say, it is a big, pricey, hardback book. But if you are wavering on this and you weren't sure if the value was there, I am a big, big fan of this one. I've got to say, I've not really got a look at this one yet. So I'm, I'm now intrigued hearing about it. Look, even just to give you one example, I was reading last night and I think we'd all perhaps heard about the anecdote of the guy who did a stunt in Dalek Invasion of Earth 2150 AD and broke his leg. Mm-hmm. So this has two or three pages on that one incident and it talks about who this guy was, what he'd done in his career, why the stunt went wrong, who was at fault, how they were at fault, what happened to him, how he had to go to hospital, how he came back. And it's even got <laughs> photographs taken on stage of him back in costume with one leg in a cast, so taken from the other side of where the cameras are, and being hidden sort of behind a Dalek in his other leg so that he, you can't see the cast. It's, it's that level of depth about every aspect of the film. That's amazing. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? Wow. I'll, I'll look this one up and see if, uh, see if I want to grab one. Yeah, look, at the very least, just have a look and see if it's within your budget, because I think it's really good. Mm, very good. I have a short topic, Dave. You've got an inverse topic here, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I've. it's not quite New Year's, so this isn't a New Year's resolution by any means. It's maybe an end-of-year resolution. But I'm thinking about selling a lot of my Doctor Who stuff in 2023. Is this a big purge or just a minor purge? What's prompted this? Oh, I, in terms of the size of the purge, I think it'll be a moderate purge. It's not a complete purge because as I approach 50, and dear listener, I'm still several years off 50. It's not happening like next year or something. But as I approach 50 and I think about stuff, and as I look around at the house and it's filling up with stuff, I look at a lot of it and I think, do I need this? Not just Doctor Who stuff, but a lot of stuff in general. I mean, my wife, bless her, never bitches about this stuff because she's a fan of stuff and she's a bit of a collector. So she gets it. You know, I can put up a a shelf load of, you know, Doctor Who novels and she's like, oh, that's cool. You know, whereas I think a not wee wife might be like, what are all these children's books doing on the shelf? (laughs) (laughs) You know, what, what the hell is wrong with you? You know? So, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for my wife and the way she is with this. But 
I sit here and I look at it and I think far out, you know, I might have got through reading a dozen books this past year and maybe a dozen more as audio books, but hardly any of that was Doctor Who related. It was all other stuff like biographies or, or Warhammer books or basically anything but Doctor Who. So when on earth am I going to read the NAs from start to finish? When on earth am I going to reread the EDAs and so on? And I think realistically there's... There's actually thousands upon thousands of dollars of books there just sitting on my shelf. Like the EDAs alone, Dave, there's 70 odd books. If you sold them for 20 bucks a pop, that's (laughs) $1,400, you know, and and the EDAs, they sell for a lot more than 20 bucks a pop. Some of them for a lot more. Yeah. So the reality would be higher. And it's also just one range of books. So the thought of being able to clear... A lot of my bookshelves is nice, and the thought of having, I don't know, $5,000, $6,000, $7,000 appear in my bank account if I get rid of multiple series of books is appealing. But it's not just about making money, even though that's nice. And yeah, sure, I could probably go and buy a cracking watch and go on a nice holiday with the missus and all that stuff. And it's not about giving up on Doctor Who. I want to stress that. I, I, I want to keep all my DVDs and Blu-rays. I want to keep most of my reference books. That's why if I buy that Dalek book, Dave, I would actually be keeping that. It's more the NAs, MAs, EDAs, PDAs, NSAs, probably all my big finish stuff. Like I've got the entire run of The Eighth Doctor on CD, That'll sell well these days because that's long out of print. Mm. I just think my priorities in life are changing, not completely, but a bit. And I think 2023 might be the year, you know, with people invested in the series again, the 60th anniversary year and all of that, might be the time to just clear some of this out and ship it off to people who, who will love it and put it on their shelves and read it and so on. Yeah. Are you open to private offers from the listeners, Rob? <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see when I actually get the inventory down. Like, yes, this is definitely going. Here's how much I'd like for it. Once I have that sort of feel, yes. Fair enough. Well, I think it's time for our main topic. I know. I'm quite excited about this one. Look, I am as well. It was something I threw out a few months ago and just said, why don't we do a second chances topic where we just pick a story from each doctor that needs a second go that needs another look from fans and we just went from there yeah because i'd I'd say over the years when we've been doing all sorts of different topics we've still come across stories here and there where our comment has been wouldn't it be great if people went back and revisited this one because in watching it today we've discovered something really great and people should give it another go so we've we've done this in a sense in various shows over the years but tonight we will do one from each era yeah look we will and we haven't conversed on exactly how we're defining it so once again we'll probably bring different things to the mix and and i've certainly sort of taken a different approach with some different doctors as well depending on how i feel about that era so look enough messing around let's Mm -hmm. let's dive in we have decided once again to randomize our order because after seven years of doing this i think just going from hartnell to whittaker is just a little bit too obvious and i like mixing it up i loved it last time we did it in a random order uh yeah so look i'm now just shaping these around and i've pulled out the first one rob would you like to go first and tell us which colin baker story you think needs a second chance oh gosh col An easy win here, Dave, I think, for Attack of the Cybermen. I've long said that if Davo's era had ended with caves and Collins had started 
with less homicidal mania and straight into this adventure with his old foes, his era might not have been saved per se, but I think a lot of people would look at it differently because I think this is a good one, particularly that first episode or that first 45 minutes with the Earth-based storyline. I think it just doesn't get enough love in general, Dave. Yeah, I can totally see that. It's one story that I feel has really gone in and out and in and out of... Uh, fashion with, mm. with fans for a while and I think it's a story that's often talked about rather than watched. Yeah, that's a very fair comment. I've gone slightly differently with Colin and I have said we need to give a second chance to The Mysterious Planet. Oh, yep. And I think that this is a story that is overlooked because of a lot of the stuff that's around it, a lot of the much more controversial Colin Baker era stuff that's around it. It's always talked about in terms of the start of the trial of a Time Lord rather than a story in its own right. Yet, underneath it all, there is a really fun, well-made story. It's a Robert Holmes story. Is it the best Robert Holmes? No, it's not, but it's quite fun. It's got good characters. It's got great location filming. It's got a strong guest cast. It's got cool robots. The special effects hold up. If, If this hadn't been chopped around with the trial scenes, I think this would be regarded, again, not as a classic, but as a good, fun romp. And I encourage listeners to go out there and just watch it on its own terms as a fun story, and I think it holds up really well. I do like the Doctor and Perry walking through the forest at the start. They're getting along a lot better. It just feels so much more relaxed and and refreshed in some ways. And all done by Colin and Nicola on location. Yeah. Because you, you watch it and the dialogue could be considered quite bitchy, but they do it in a sort of a, a fun having a go way rather than an actual bitchy way. And it's the same dialogue, but just done so much better. Yeah. The relationship is so much better. It's it's arguably Nicola's best story. I'd go with that. Yeah. Certainly certainly with Colin anyway. Mm, yeah. Uh, our next one, and my turn to go first. And, yes. uh, oh, this was a tough era, the David Tennant era. Oh, okay. Now, I'll say at the top, I struggled with this a little bit because I think more than any other era, I feel in sync with sort of mainstream fandom. I think the tenant stories that I really love, everybody kind of really loves, and the ones that I think are weaker, everybody kind of thinks are a bit weaker, apart from those people that love everything that David Tennant did. But I have picked out The Planet of the Ood. Mm-hmm. Not because I think people think it's a bad story, but I think people forget about it. It's one that gets lost in a lot of the big drama of the David Tennant era. It's not a controversial story. It's not a bad story. It's not a, wow, this is a classic story. It's just there, and it's just good. And again, it looks good. It's got some comedy moments. It's got some drama. It's got good-looking aliens. It's got a moral message that is just left to simmer rather than being rammed down your throat. It's Mm -hmm. got Tim McInerney, for goodness sake. That's a reason to watch anything. I just think it sits really, really well. Tenant's good. Even though I'm not a particular fan of Catherine Tate, I think this is one of her stronger performances where she's really got to grips with the role after a couple of episodes. And I just think this is one that needs to be pulled out of the Tenant drama and the shadow and given a second chance. Very fair, and I can say that it was repeated on television here, oh, 
<laughs> if I say two weeks ago or a month ago or two months ago, I really don't know which one of those statements would be right. <laughs> but recently, I saw it repeated. It was late at night, and I saw it repeated on the ABC. And I sat and watched what was probably the, the second half of it. I was just flicking channels at the time, and I was really taken in with it. And one of my thoughts was, gosh, this, this isn't like modern Doctor Who, like in terms of the Doctor Who we've been watching in the past year or two. It, it just felt completely different, felt completely better as well. And yeah, but it wasn't a story that I would have ever, ever thought to have put on as, oh, I, I'll put something on, I'll put on Planet of the Ood. No, I, I would never think that, Dave. No, I think it is quite neglected. But where did you go for David Tennant? Well, I agree with you that Tennant has a pretty strong era and even stuff you think will be underrated at first glance usually isn't once you poke the surface a bit so i had to really sit and think about this one mm. i think it's got to be the next doctor which is the 2008 christmas special oh, i love it keep going yeah because i think this had an interesting premise with this guy convinced he's the doctor the mid 1800s setting was a winner for me i thought that looked really cool and i think the cyber king concept is just bonkers but bonkers is what you do at Christmas, you know. Maybe it's just the time of year, Dave, because we're coming up to Christmas, but I'm really sold on The Next Doctor. That's one that I don't see a lot of people talking about anymore. It's a story that I think went down in people's estimation because it wasn't what they expected. I think when you call the story The Next Doctor and cast David Morrissey, you expect something that's... I don't know what people expected, but it wasn't what they got. Mm. And um, and the ending is bonkers, and that you know doesn't always work for people. So yeah, I think that you're right. A, a strong story has been a bit neglected there. Yeah, so I couldn't go past it. Excellent. Well, I will reach into my pile of doctors, mm-hmm. and Rob lead us off with a Troughton. Oh gosh, Pat's era has been picked over and analysed so much as the decades have gone by. And we've got some stories back in that time and others have been animated. And when I looked at the list, it's truly hard, truly, truly hard to find something that can be called underrated. There's stuff that's not good, but it's not stuff that I can go into bat for per se. (laughs) Like, I don't know, the underwater menace or something like that. So I'm left with either the space pirates or the wheel in space. And I think I'll go with wheel. Because although people point out issues with it based on listening to it and looking at stills, I think if the four missing episodes came back, there would be more of a turnaround. Not a complete turnaround, I want to say, but I think there's more to this than people give it credit for when they're consuming it in such substandard ways. Yeah, I I just think there's more to it, Dave, so... I don't know, we'd have to maybe get those episodes back for my dream to fully come (laughs) to reality, but I think people would like Wheel in Space more if they could see it. I think so too. I think if we had episode one with the servo robot on the the silver carrier, if we had episodes four and five where the Cybermen are taking over the wheel, Mm. I think it would be much better regarded. I have listened to this, and and every time I listen to it, I, I do appreciate that it's better than its reputation so i think that's a good pull thank you i went in a different direction and i picked the crotons okay and this is a story that does i think have a bad reputation and in a number of ways for justifiable reasons it, it is a rush production it of course was thrown together after prison in space was uh vetoed by the director appropriately so <laughs> yes uh, 
But this, to me, was one of my first introductions to Trout and when this and the Mind Robber were repeated on the ABC in 1986. And I think it's a good adventure. Is it a Trout and Monster Era classic? No. But the Crotons are an interesting concept. You've got the Doctor, Jamie and Zoe, and they're always interesting to look at. You've got a number of good characters there with the Gons. And, and I just think that, yep, it's got some weak moments, but have another look at this because... There's a lot going for it. It's a proto-Robert Holmes story, and you can see a few of the things that he's doing there. Elick is a very Robert Holmes-type character. Yeah, give it another go. Yeah, I, I was sitting there, sitting back listening to you there, and I thought, yeah, maybe I should go and put the Crotons on later tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, look, I, I haven't watched the Crotons for a very long time, but when I did recently, I thought, this has got more going for it than I remembered. For sure. Our next one is Tom. Oh, gosh. You're first on this one, I think. I am first on this one, and I'm going to just dive in and say I'm picking the Android Invasion. I think this is a cracker of a story, and I think that it's neglected not because it's necessarily bad, but because it is an unusual Hinchcliffe story. It, it, it does feel like an early Tom or even a Pertwee in the middle of the Hinchcliffe era. It's not as dark mm-hmm. as that, so it does stand out. I think every fan knows that, oh, the eye patch doesn't really work, and I can't believe he didn't look under the eye patch for... Yeah, 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 okay, we get it, everybody. We yeah. get the eye patch is, is a bit lame if you watch it again and again and again. But who cares? This is a wonderfully written, made, and produced Doctor Who story. It looks great out there on the location filming in East Hagborn, where, where I've been. Uh, you know, it looks mm-hmm. looks great. I think that the Kraals are a really cool monster design. I think Stigrin's a really good villain. You've got a really cool sci-fi premise. You've got the great stuff with the Doctor and the Sarah androids. Tom's in good form. Look, am I saying it's a Hinchcliffe Tom classic? No, I'm not. There's a lot of better stories in that era. But I think this is neglected. It is overlooked and allowed to just stand on its own set apart from the era as a fun adventure, and I emphasise the word adventure, I think it was worthy of a second look. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the last time I watched it was, I don't know, a year or two back, and I was more than happy to be re-watching it. I mean, I first saw it as a very small child, and the memory that stuck, stuck in my mind the most was, you know, Sarah Jane's face falling off. And... That that moment is still really cool, even if the android underneath looks a bit rubbish. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's it is fun. It is it is absolutely serviceable. Actually, better than serviceable Doctor Who. It, it's it's great. It, it's one of those bottles of wine that you think's a bit cheap and going to be a bit ordinary, but you have the first swig and you go, "This is going to be very easy to drink." Yeah, exactly. Seven seasons of Tom. What do you think needs a second chance, Rob? I thought we were going to snap, and you'll see why in a moment, but we didn't snap. Uh, I've picked a story here that's interesting, insofar as I know people who are wildly, wildly passionate for this story. So I know it's not some hated thing that no one but some truly mad person will go into bat for. But broadly, I don't feel it gets as much love still today as it should and anyone who sticks with it, I guarantee, will have a rollicking, swashbuckling time. Any guesses, Dave? Is it the androids of Tara? It is! 
is! <laughs> the swashbuckling kind of gave it away. Yeah, and that's why I thought we were going to snap when you said Android. And I thought, oh no, he's going to say Androids of Tara. <laughs> he said Android Invasion. Androids of Tara, I think it's witty, fun, some great location shooting, just very easy to watch Doctor Who. And it just still doesn't grab as many people as I think it should. No, I totally agree. It's a very fun David Fisher script. It's got Peter Jeffrey just absolutely having a blast in the role of Count Grendel of Gracht. And, uh, oh, what's not to love? Yeah. And you've been to both locations for our fourth Doctor picks. That's true, I have. Yes. <laughs> I just noticed that, yep. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah. Uh, I'm pulling another Doctor out of the okay. file. Rob, for you to tell us, a second chance for Christopher Eccleston. For Eccleston. Okay. Eccleston is a little easier than... Uh, I don't know, someone like McGann, who only has one story. But only just, because he's only got the one series under his belt. So, And, and, feel, and half of those are classics. <laughs> half of them are classics. So I feel very pushed. And I wouldn't be surprised if we snap here. I feel very pushed towards Boomtown. Being particularly a story that I didn't even like originally myself. And when you look at it, at its position in the series, you have this amazing run of stories. The finale's just over the horizon. And it's this weird little story that's jammed in between them all. Cardiff-based, limited sets, the return of a Slovene. And I didn't particularly like the uh, Raxacorico Fallopatorians in general. It didn't inspire at first. In fact, I didn't like it at first. But on rewatch and in recent years, I think, yeah, this has got legs. And I like this scene in the restaurant. And I actually do like this one. And I think for anyone out there who is still thinking, oh, it's that terrible one I watched back in 2005. Or, oh, it's one that no one ever talks about because they're always talking about Dalek and the Empty Child and, you know, (laughs) the Parting of the Ways and all these other great stories. This is one to pull out and just give another chance to, I think, if you haven't. I probably do need to do that. Because my memory of it is not good. And I've only watched it twice. Once on broadcast and once when we were talking about the Eccleston era. Mm -hmm. And on both occasions, I watched it in the context of the season. And I think you're right. I do need to just pull it apart from the season and let it stand on its own two legs. Rather than something squeezed between a couple of outright two-part classics. Mm -hmm. That's it. So I'm really intrigued now as to what you've picked if that's not it. Look, I went for something that I actually thought was very easy because there is a story in the Eccleston era that is absolutely hated by a lot of Doctor Who fans, absolutely loathed. And I suspect when they go back to rewatch the Eccleston era, it is just skipped over because everybody knows that everybody hates the long game. Whereas I think the long game is awesome. I, I think this is great Doctor Who. We go into the far future. We go into a cool space station. We've got cool sci-fi concepts going on. We've got a strong guest cast. We've got Eccleston and Billy Piper absolutely at the height of their relationship now, just playing off each other so well. We've got some commentary, again, some social commentary, not rammed down people's throats, but just very clearly put out there to give you a bit of pause for thought. It's Mm. got a cool alien at the end. It's got one of the best guest stars that Doctor Who's ever got. I mean, goodness me. (laughs) I, I don't know why people loathe this story. I genuinely don't. I think that, again, like Boomtown, yes, I can understand if you're watching the season back, 
it can kind of get lost in the cracks. It's not as good as what's around it. Sure, I accept that. But pull it out and watch it as just a good sci-fi adventure with a really cool guest cast. And I think that it will earn its second chance. It's a story that I know, in quotation marks, I don't like. But it's been so long since I've seen it, I can't actually tell you why I don't like it. I think that that's probably very, very common. And that's why I think it needs a second chance to stand on its own two legs. Mm. And indeed, with any of the ones we're talking about tonight, if, if listeners are sitting back and thinking, oh, I hate that one, but I can't tell you why. <laughs> Maybe it is time to go back to them, which I will do with this one, actually. Fair enough. Okay, cool. Uh, well, I will keep us going then with... The pile's getting smaller. Mm-hmm. Davo. Davo. This was another era like Tenet I found very difficult because my views on most Davison stories are pretty black and white. I I know what I like and I know what I don't like. And, and once again, I think I'm fairly in line with fan views on a lot of these. Mm-hmm. But I am going out maybe on a limb with this one and saying we need to give a second chance to Terminus. Oh, Terminus is not a great story. I will say that right up front i know Hmm. it's got its faults but there's a lot of good stuff going on in there episode one is actually really creepy it's really effective there are again interesting concepts there are some good cast members yes there are some ropey special effects and some ropey moments but there's a lot of good moments in there as well there's a lot of humanity going on in this story it's saying a few things it's always got something going on yes it's a bit gray yes it's a bit drab but it's not as bad as people say and Mm. and look of all the picks i've picked out tonight this is the one that i do feel i've gone out furthest on a limb for but i just think that there's enough going on in terminus that it's worth a second look yeah it's that early 80s obviously it's an early 80s davos series but it does have its own vibe and feel that that certainly wasn't there later in the 80s when they got to Sylvester and probably wasn't even there with Colin. I don't think you would have Terminus in Colin's era. Conversely, I don't see Tom being in Terminus. It is very much its own thing. And I think if if you're getting into the Davison era and you're watching these stories, I think that can be a very interesting thing because, no, it's not a great story, but I think it's very interesting to watch in terms of what they're doing, how they're doing it, and all of that. That would be some of my reasons for going and watching it again. I think you're right, and I think that it is a story that could only be a Davis Nera story. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But I know you love the Davis Nera, Rob. What did you pick out? (laughs) I'm going with Kinder here, Dave, and I can sense a lot of long-term listeners cringing because (laughs) Kinder is one of my Fifth Doctor go-to stories, no matter what the topic is. (laughs) I always bring up Kinder. But I think it fits because people talk Fifth Doctor as caves and enlightenment and certainly Earthshock, maybe the Black Guardian trilogy, all these other stories. Kinder always seems to coast a little under many radars. But I do think it's fabulous. That's why I talk about it all the time. Albeit, you know, it's a studio-bound story. Yes, I get all of that. But it's it's a great outing for Davo and friends. And so, although it might be an obvious one, and although it might not be the most odd pick I could have, 
I still think it's valid. I still think not enough people know how good Kinder is. I feel like Kinder is either absolutely loved or forgotten. Mm. There you go. And I think those that love it, love it passionately, want everybody to know that they love it. That, they, that it's, it's like being in a club. You've got Kinder and <laughs> yes. you love it. You need to make sure everyone else in the club knows that you're part of the club. But but you're right, it, it does sort of get scattered over. So I, I totally see where you're coming from. It's a really good story. It's a fantastic story. Mm. And I'll, I'll just sort of say, and I'm not doing this for most other eras, but uh, Mordred Undead was the other one that I was really tossing around. And in the end, I thought it's better regarded than Terminus, so it doesn't need the second chance as much. I would agree with that, for sure. You'll keep us going then, Rob, with... Mm-hmm. And I'm just turning away, so I don't, don't see. <laughs> Capaldi. Capaldi. Oh, gosh. Dave, easily for Capaldi, the Eaters of Light. I was anticipating this one so hard because of Rona Munro of survival fame, you know, coming back to the series, and she's still the only person to have written for classic and modern Doctor Who. And the setting was great. I think the story was solid, albeit it didn't set the world on fire. And the fan reaction was, well, a a damp sort of fart, really. You know, no one talks about this one, Dave. And I think it's high time people went back and gave it a look. Eaters of Light. I'm really glad you picked that one. I think the only reason I didn't is because I forget how much people hate it because I just can't stand people hating it because I love it so very, very, very much. (laughs) Right. There you go. Uh, so that's a really good pull and one that I easily could have had. I, I fully endorsed that. I, I gave Eaters of Light a 10 out of 10 when we reviewed it. I still think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's not where I went, though. I went for a earlier Capaldi story that I think was dismissed by a lot of people at the time and has since been forgotten. But I think we need to give a second chance to Robot of Sherwood. Okay. Yep. I think that this was coming out at a time where a lot of people weren't quite sure what the Capaldi Doctor was. I think he had a very uncertain start in his first episode. I think that Into the Dalek, he's just a prick. He's just an unlikable, badly written prick. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people were not quite sure about Capaldi. You then go into Robot of Sherwood, and because of where we'd come from, I think that the Capaldi again came over as a bit callous, a bit of a prick, a bit of a bastard. Whereas I think if you watch it now, separated from that, just again on its own, you actually see that this is the Capaldi we're going to come to love. It's the Capaldi who's a bit prickly, but it's actually in a really fun way. The way that he interacts with um, all of the, the, the people in Nottingham in Sherwood Forest is just really, really fun. It's really, really grumpy. It's, it's I think, Tom Baker-ish. I think that this was the first time I thought... This, this guy isn't doing Pertwee or Trout, and he's doing Tom. Mm. And again, it's brilliantly shot. I think it's a fun story. And, and I think that, yeah, look, I understand that if you're watching the Capaldi era in order, Robot of Sherwood maybe doesn't quite work, but I think as a standalone, give it its own chance. Yeah, I'm not sure Tom would have got away with giving Robin Hood the finger. But <laughs> different times, different times. <laughs> different times. But yeah, look, on first watch, I didn't particularly like Robot of Sherwood. I had a lot of issues with it. I mean, one of them is still there, and that's the, the firing the arrow at the ship at the end. It's like, oh, no, could we have... Could we've had a better sort of resolution to this? Yeah, but welcome to most of New Who. Yeah, well, exactly. But other aspects of it on rewatch, and that rewatch was a year or two after the event, I felt a lot better about it. And I think if I watched it now, I might bloody love it. 
you know, aside <laughs> from that arrow thing at the end, I might bloody love it because, yes, once you know where Capaldi's heading and once you know how it fits into things, yes, yes, I can see that very much. And just to, to pull out something that I think is emerging as a bit of a theme here, and it's really highlighted by this one, but it is in a number of the stories we've picked, is that they don't often have the strongest of endings. But what mm. we're saying is, like, when you know that the bad ending's coming, that's fine. You can kind of factor that into your expectations and then just enjoy the ride. Very much so. Uh, another Doctor for you, Rob? Yes. Let's go to McCoy. McCoy. Sylve is a difficult era because there's a lot of stories I really like in season 25 and 26. And I think broadly they're quite popular as well. So I find myself drawn back towards his first season. And I think the underrated stories in the first season are probably his first two. Now, of those, there's no way in hell I'm going to suggest Time and the Rani is a diamond in the rough. So Paradise Towers, it is, Dave. I think there's enough in it, and it does get overlooked, particularly when people look at the the, the next two seasons and talk about Remembrance of the Daleks and The Greatest Show in the Galaxy and The Curse of Fenric and all of that stuff. I think it does get overlooked. I think it's worth a revisit. I think there's some fun stuff in there. The cleaning robots are a bit hammy and don't move fast enough. You know, Richard Bryer's overacting. We can take that, you know, one way or the other. But I think there's enough there to just dig in and have fun with it, particularly, as we've said in a few of these examples, you're not watching it as part of a season rewatch. You're just pulling this one off the shelf and watching it for what it is. I think Paradise Towers is a lot better than its reputation. I think the script of Paradise Towers is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think that the costume design is really strong. I think the set design is really strong. I think that the cast is exceptionally talented. I just don't think any of those fantastic things are all in the same story. Or, or <laughs> None of them seem to be in tune with each other. And, and that's, that's probably why I think it, it doesn't quite work. But you're right. If you just sit there and go, okay, I know that there's a little bit of a directorial mess in this. But the script is really good, and focus on that. There's a lot to recommend Paradise Towers. Yeah, I think so. I went to the other end of the era, though. Oh, this will be interesting. And I've picked Battlefield. Yeah, I, I can see why you've done that. Yep. I think that if Battlefield had been in season 25, 24, 23, 22, it would be seen as the greatest story of that season. Maybe maybe it would be beaten by Remembrance. I'll, I'll give Remembrance that one. Oh, if it was in 24, Dave, I mean, it doesn't fit with 24. I'll say that up front. But if it was in 24, it would blow everything away in 24. Look, it, it absolutely would. And in a number of other seasons as well. It is, however, in season 26, which is just sort of banger after banger. And I think it does have the reputation as, oh, that, that, that's the weak one from season 26. Just sort of, you know, pat it on yeah. the head and send it to bed and we'll go and go and play with the Curse of Fenric. You know, it's... um. Yeah. It's, it's neglected and it needs to be given a bit more love because it is spectacular. It is mm-hmm. a wonderful romp. It is a wonderful adventure. The idea of, you know, Doctor Who doing King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table is just a fantastic idea. It's done well. It's got Lethbridge Stewart in it. It's got that Cartmel era sort of social commentary and the stuff about nuclear war. I mean, that, that monologue that McCoy... Gives and you know that I think neither of us are big fans of big wanky monologues in Doctor no. Who, Rob. But the monologue that McCoy gives about nuclear war, I think, actually does go beyond being a wanky speech and is 
properly powerful, uh, particularly when it's played against Gene Marsh, who is just exceptional. It's mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with this story. I can't fault any aspect of it, and yet it, it just seems to be ignored as the not-as-good one in the back end of the McCoy era, and that's just a waste. Pull this out, let it breathe on its own, and give it a second chance. Yeah, good call there. We'll keep pushing on, and our next Doctor, and I will lead here... Oh, we are down to William Hartnell. Ooh. Now I'm really intrigued about this one. Yeah, tough for me, because... I just sort of love the Hartnell era with, you know, only one exception, and I'm obviously not going to recommend that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, what is a story that is properly neglected and doesn't get the love it should? I toyed with the gunfighters, but I think that's being re-evaluated by people. I think that is being given a second chance. So Mm -hmm. I've gone with a really neglected story, and that is The Censorites. Okay. I agree this is a weaker story, perhaps the weaker story, of the first season, but let it stand on its own because you have got a story that builds and builds and gets better and better as it goes along. Yes, I get that it's very slow in the start. I acknowledge part one, whilst an interesting premise is the kind of thing that we used to think the Hartnell era was, just a very dull people walking around a couple of dull sets for an entire episode until things kick off in part two. That is actually a fair criticism of the censorites. But as we go down, we get down to a world that has got proper aliens who all have different characters, who all have Mm -hmm. different perspectives. It's the sort of world building we absolutely praise everywhere else in Doctor Who. The, The design is different. Again, in his 60s Doctor Who, trying to be different. The companions are under threat. The Doctor is now the moral centre of the show. And this is the first time in Doctor Who's history where the Doctor is told by the Chief Censorite, look, you've done what we asked, you're free to go. And he says, no, I'm going to stay and help because that's what I do. It's the first time Mm. that happens in the show's history. It's very important. We then start to work out what's going on, who is poisoning the Censorites, why are they doing it? And it all comes together, and I think it's actually a number of really good threads that by episode four is really just belting along. I think it deserves a second chance, and that you do need to push past the first episode to really appreciate it. Yeah, and I would have recently watched this, I think, uh, for something we were doing here on the podcast. So it's it's in the last year or two, I think, we would have watched this, Dave, both of us. We did do a season one deep dive, I reckon, last year. Yeah, it would have been last year, and... And at the time, I thought the plot really hangs together well and makes sense. I mean, we've just had Jodie's farewell where the plot didn't make any sense at all. Here, the plot makes sense. You can understand the motivations because different sensorites do have different personalities and all of that. They're not just this homogenous alien race, which alien races often get written as like, oh, they all think the same. It's like, that's pretty unrealistic. No, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're all really different. And the way, I'm trying not to spoil people, but the way uh, one of them gets caught out towards the end is obvious, but it's it's part of the story. It makes sense. It hangs together. Yeah. So yeah, the first episode is a bit ropey, but uh, good call on the whole there, Dave, I think. And where did you go with my favourite era? Well, Dave, you and I guested on All of Time and Space, uh, that podcast, recently when they did the War Machines. And that's going to be my pick here because doing that episode opened me up to the idea that while I love the story and always have for the 60s location work, the introduction of Ben and Polly, 
Votan mimicking what the internet would be. There's this fan wisdom around, oh, that's the one where Dodo leaves in a stupid way and it's it's Hartnell at the end of his run and he's clapped out and, you know, the war machines are a bit crap. And that seems to drag this story down for many people, whether they've watched it at least once or whether they've watched it a few times and still think that, or whether it's just received fan wisdom that they've heard and they think, well, I don't want to watch that show. That, that, that sounds a bit naff. I've come to realise that the war machines isn't as well loved as I love it. And so I want to throw that into the mix and say, if you've not seen The War Machines, <laughs> please go and buy a coffee on DVD and watch it. It's great. I agree. It is great. I think another disadvantage that The War Machines have is that those people who, like me, are passionate fans of the Hartnell era don't latch on to it because it actually is quite unusual in the Hartnell era. So if you're selling the Hartnell era, you talk about the historicals and the Daleks and the weird alien races and all of those big things that they did. Whereas this is a very normal, it's actually a very conventional, not at the time, it was almost unique and unusual at the time, but it now seems a very conventional story. So it's not one that Hartnell fans go, check out how good the Hartnell era is, check out the War Machines, because it's not typical of the Hartnell era. Yeah, not indicative at all. No, it's not. So I think it does get neglected even by fans of the era. So yeah, really good call there. Mm -hmm. We have three Doctors left, Rob. We haven't snapped yet. Let's see if we do. But can you please tell us, Rob, which Pertwee story deserves a second chance? A tricky one, Dave. I'm going to plump for the Time Monster because I think this one has some issues, but it does get whacked with received fan wisdom a bit more than is justified. I think there's plenty in this one, whether the the unit scenes or the Doctor telling the extended story about the Hermit back on Gallifrey and the Daisiest Daisy. There's some really good Doctor Who of its era in here, but I think some might be scared off from ever trying it at all. Even, you know, they've never seen it and they just hear all this received fan wisdom. Oh, that's the terrible one. So I'm using it as my pick here to say, try it. Don't be scared. The Time Monster isn't all bad. You may see things in it that cause you to think, oh, that's why people don't like this one. But it doesn't make it not worth watching and not worth pulling out here as something that deserves a second chance. Rob, you'd think that we scripted this because just after I've said we haven't snapped yet... (laughs) You're kidding. (laughs) Here we go and snap. Okay. I echo everything you've said about the Time Monster. This was one of the easiest picks for me because I think it is a genuinely underrated and neglected story that needs a second chance. Its weakest aspects are at the front of the story. I think that's a problem for people who are coming to it. It gets better as every episode goes on. Uh, It gets more interesting as we work out what's going on with the Master's plot and what it's all about. You then get all that very cool stuff in the two TARDISes where the Master's TARDIS just looks spectacular Mm. and you get that proper interplay between the Doctor and the Master that's really good. But by the time you get to Atlantis, there's a really strong story going on here. Dalius is a really strong Pertwee character. The Doctor works really well in that environment. The Master is at his absolute manipulative evil best and that's fantastic. Uh, You called out the scene about the Daisiest Daisy, which is is a lovely scene, but I want to call out some of the work being done by Ingrid Peters, Queen Galea, who mm-hmm. I think, let's be frank, most fans just look at her costume and look at photos of that and go, she's just a pair of tits. And yep. I think that that's just a really dismissive and unfortunate view because she gives an amazing performance. Her one-on-ones playing off Delgado, where she's being seduced by the master and seduced by power, are really, really 
effective. The way that she talks with her slave girl and that she's just, she knows the power she's got and she just knows how to just use it tantalizingly. Um, the reaction that she has when she finds out that her husband hasn't just been imprisoned, but has been murdered by the master and he's no longer alive. That's a really powerful moment. You then get the destruction of Atlantis, the end of yep. a civilization, and then a final moral comeuppance for the master as he's faced with Kronos at the end. I think there's a lot to commend this story. I agree that the best stuff is definitely in the back half, but yeah, look, we've both said it's worth a second go. Hugely. Of all the ones we've done so far, this is the one I think that gets panned the most but deserves the most rewatches. Yeah, and that's not to say that there aren't some absolutely cringeworthy moments in here. I get it. Like, I sure. get why this has got some of the reputation, but there's a lot more going for it than people appreciate, and um, particularly in some of those performances. Yeah, like I say, you'll, you'll get hit a moment and think, oh, that's why people don't like this one. But just push through it. There's a lot more to it. Absolutely. So I will keep us going with Matt Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, again, an era where I've got sort of stories that I love and stories that I hate. And I thought, what's, what's a neglected little gem in this era? And I have picked A Town Called Mercy. Yeah. Yep. This is just a story that seems to be utterly overlooked utterly forgotten about. I never hear anybody talk up a town called Mercy, but I think it's one of the most interesting and fun adventures that the Matt Smith era has. It, it comes off the back of season six, which is a look, I love, or, love it or hate it season, and we don't need to go down that path again. Mm. But the era's come out the back of that and just decided to have some real fun with some concepts. And, and the Doctor doing a Western with a weird sort of android dude is just a fun story. Is it a Matt Smith emotional classic like Vincent and the Doctor or Amy's Choice? No, I'm not going to pretend it is. Is mm. it a big, amazing Stephen Moffat, timey-wimey, oh my God, you've blown me away with this arc? No, mm. it's not. It's just a good, fun adventure and it deserves more than the, frankly, neglect I think it gets. Do you know, I don't think I've seen this since it went out originally that wouldn't shock me at all i don't think anybody has yeah and and so i'm, I'm sort of thinking yeah i'm one of these people who hasn't rewatched it for sure as i recall there was a a fella not the android but another fella he was like a scientist and a war criminal or something yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was hiding in the western town or something and i think there was a really good storyline there I'm, i could have it completely wrong maybe it was the the robot who was the war criminal but someone was a war criminal i think and there was this deeper story there. It wasn't just Matt Smith in a Stetson pretending to be a cowboy for a, for a story. Yeah. What about you, Rob? For Smithy, I'm honing in on the God Complex. This is a story I think has a lot going on and is quite dark and unhappy, yet... I seldom see anyone really jump on board and defend it and say, this is bloody great, this is amazing, you know? The idea of being trapped in this hotel and your worst fears could be behind the next door and the minotaur that is feeding off of people's faith. Oh, man, there's so much to it. Why don't more people talk about this one, Dave? The God Complex for me all day long. I've had a couple of people say to me over the years, look, we get you don't like Series 6, but give the God Complex a second go. And mm -hmm. I, I think I need to make a point over this summer of doing that. Oh, look, it's 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 wonderful. I think it's so good. 
No, fair enough. I, I must admit I, I don't have any strong memories of it. So uh, I think it does, yeah, need a second chance. Yeah, interesting. My, my Smith uh, is, is one that you can't remember. Your Smith is one I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Well, not very that's well true. anyway. <laughs> uh, Rob, look, we have randomised the order of the Doctors by pulling them out of a hat, and yet we still have Whitaker last, so that's just how probability goes. Uh, lead us off one more time, please. What Jodie Whitaker story do you think needs a second chance? Well, for Whitaker, I'm a bit torn, Dave, but I think it might, it might be Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror, a story which at the time didn't even grab me, and it's not a Jodie story you hear a lot of people reference, but when I think back on it, the bloke playing Tesla was very good, the costumes and the locations looked incredible for Doctor Who, and I think there was a good, fun historical romp lurking in there which gets overlooked quite a lot for whatever reason you know I I won't go into the 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 psychology of why people weren't enjoying this particular series but I think it might be Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror yeah yeah I'll go with that I like that pick because I think you're right the Jodie Whittaker era is quite recent and so a lot of the hot takes are still warm and, mm. and, and there's a lot in that series that was either instant classic, instant turkey, or this is controversial. Yeah. And in, mixed in all of that was, I agree, just a good, solid adventure. And I'm sitting here thinking, I remember that being okay, not great. I'm going, well, what was wrong with it? Nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, no, good, Paul. Uh, I've gone in a slightly different direction with the 13th Doctor, and I've picked the Ghost Monument. And that is because of something we discussed a few episodes ago about Chris Chibnall and the fact that we all went into his era thinking that there was going to be some sort of master plan or arc or development or that crumbs and bread trails would be left for us to pick up as the era went on. And we since learned from the mouth of the man himself that not none of that was happening. If you mm. saw a breadcrumb, it wasn't a trail, someone had just dropped a sandwich. So <laughs> I go back to the ghost monument knowing that and take it for what it was meant to be and i think it stands up a lot better than it did at the time Uh, number one it is lavishly filmed and i do remember when we did our hot take the one thing we both agreed on with this story was wow this new camera work they're doing and this new technology they have is paying off the location footage is just magnificent so i think it holds up there i think that it is a perfectly good solid adventure it's got some nice moments of peril it's got some nice alien world stuff going on the guest cast is fine the doctor gets to do a bit of doctory stuff now look i know you and i were both down on the very end and the way that it let down jody's character but as we've said all the way through this if you kind of know it's got a bit of a weak last two minutes you can put that aside and just enjoy a very good i think underrated first 50 minutes and Again, when you're not sitting there watching the Ghost Monument going, ooh, are these things going to come back later? Oh, ooh, are, are the people that created these weapons, are they are they going to come back in the series? We're going to, is it a Time Lord thing, maybe? Oh, what's going... When you sort of know, actually, no, none of that's going on. Just enjoy this as a romp. I think it's a good mm. romp. Yeah, I must say, I've not gone back to it since it went out, but I think I would feel precisely the way you're describing there. I do know the ending. I do know it's weak. You know, she, she just gives up. Yeah. Oh, I've lost the TARDIS. Sorry, everybody. 
Yeah. You know, whatever. God, can you believe writing that in a script? No. Anyway, I won't go down that rabbit hole. I think if I went back to it now, yes, I think I would like it a lot more. But I think when you're in that early part of a brand new Doctor, you're only a couple of stories in, you're wanting it to be just great. And it was good, but not great. So, you know, I tended to come down on the, the negative side of it. But... Yeah, I think a, a re-evaluation of the Whitaker era could be coming for me at some stage, if not us, if we do it on the, the show in the next year or maybe two years. And we'll find this uh, a bit with her era, at least. I, I agree. I think that there are a number of stories in the Whitaker era, and, and I think we've just picked two of them, that when taken as standalone stories removed of the baggage of the era, I think we'll, we'll actually stand up a lot better than we remember. Agreed. Now, Rob, I didn't put McGann into the mix because... Look, he only had one story on television, and frankly, it would just be me saying, go read The Dying Days. The Dying Days is awesome. Uh, but you're a much bigger connoisseur of the McGann era than I am. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention on that one? I, I do. It, it might not quite be an answer uh, either, but with so little TV content, it leaves us with the EDA novels and the big finish releases. And I've read all of the EDAs, and I've listened to... Until most recently, I've heard all of the 8th Doctor Big Finish releases. The problem is, though, when it comes to the EDAs, so many of them are popular, like uh, Alien Bodies, for example. (laughs) I can't recommend that because everyone loves that. And there are others that I've just completely forgotten because I haven't read them for 20 years (laughs) or over 20 years. And when it comes to Big Finish, I've, I've heard all the stories but I'm not close enough to Big Finish to actually know if I'm recommending something that's truly underrated. For example, off the top of my head, I love The Silver Turk, for example. It plays to all the strengths of the Eighth Doctor. But is it underrated? Or if I scratch the surface, am I going to find it's in the top five of Big Finish releases? So I'm actually going to plead the fifth on this one, Dave, even though I do have quite a background in his EDAs and Big Finish releases. Um... I'll throw the Silver Turk in there, perhaps. Yeah, and look, I was thinking about it as you said it, and I'll, I'll throw War of the Daleks in there. All from the EDAs? From the EDAs, yeah. I, yep. I, I think it was dismissed at the time as one great big John Peel fan wake. And look, there, there is a bit, bit of that going on, but it, it's more than that. It's an interesting idea. It's a good began Dalek story, and it was you know, famously the first licensed Dalek story since Remembrance. So yes. it, it, it you know was a big deal at the time. So yeah, look, if we're pulling some McGanns out of the uh, the broader universe, I'll go with that. Very good. So that is our list of second chances that we uh, think you should give listeners. Again, please let us know what you think of our chances. And particularly if you do go and take any of our suggestions over this Christmas break and you think, you know what, I haven't watched that for a while. It does deserve a second go. I'll bung it on. Please let us know what you think. We would love to hear that. We really would. Uh, But look, it is getting into the holiday season here. Rob, have you been watching anything of note? Dave, I've been watching on Netflix the series Wednesday. This is a lot of fun. It's an eight-part series. They've basically taken the Wednesday Adams character out of the the Adams family. The others, like Morticia, Gomez, Lurch, Uncle Festa, they're in it, but they're sort of in reduced cameos here and there. It's really about Wednesday being sent off to boarding school where she has a dry-as-hell one-liner for basically every situation and just deadpans her way through the story, which is probably best likened to another Netflix series, which is the reimagined version of Sabrina. 
So if you liked that, you'll eat this up. Think slightly gory teenage horror with gags. It might have worked even better at maybe six episodes, but watching it as eight episodes was no real hardship. I really liked it. And Jenna Ortega, who plays Wednesday, I think will become a big star over the decade ahead. Yeah, it's interesting. You're, I think, the fourth or fifth person that's recommended Wednesday to me over the last week or so. I, I didn't jump at the series initially because, look, listeners know that here in Australia we always talk about the Doctor Who repeats and the goodies repeats and everything on yeah. on the ABC, but the commercial channels were just as bad. And when I was in primary school particularly, in those sort of deader hours of the day, uh, you would get constant repeats of The Addams Family and The Munsters and I Dream of Genie. And look, I can remember you know getting up for school and Mr. Ed repeats were on for God's sake. On one and of leave com- it to Beaver. Yeah, just just so like you know, don't, don't think it was just BBC stuff on the ABC. We got we we got just wall to repeats of all of this stuff. Um, the yeah. the Batman sixty six, the monkeys, you know, they were all on when I was a kid, just again and again and again. And and I never sort of like got the Adams family. I sort of appreciated it for what it was but I was never like oh this is awesome this is a really fun kooky piece of television in the way I did something like say the monkeys or Batman mm. so you know I, I didn't sort of remember that well but you no know, people have said that this is really good so yeah I think I will have to put it on my list of things to check out over my um four or five weeks off yeah it's it's really great and it is interesting as as children of the 80s we are so well versed and we talk about the british stuff all the time but we are so well versed in american television of the 60s which which people might not get from our podcast uh, at all but we really are we've seen all this stuff get smart was on i think just constant loops just week after week after week that has kept playing get smart on a saturday afternoon to fill it up it was just yeah, yep. fantastic in some ways. But but also, yeah, there's some stuff that's just like, oh my God, more Adam's Family? Like, what's going on? Mm. Yeah, look, I haven't been watching anything particularly of note. As I noted in our last episode, I had three out of four weeks up in Canberra for sitting weeks, and they were quite quite busy weeks. Um, and since then, I've kind of been you know, kind of exhausted and just wanted to chill um, and mm. a- avoiding multiple Christmas catch-ups. Um, <laughs> but I have sort of found a number of older series um, have been popping up on various different TV apps that I've sort of just dipped into with mixed results. Uh, I watched the first couple of episodes of Buffy when I saw that had dropped on Disney+, Plus, I think. Mm. And I've got to say, I thought they held up really well. There are definitely moments watching those first few episodes of Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, where I thought, wow, this really is a quarter of a century old now, and it it either looks it or it sounds it. But there's other stuff where you go, I remember why I absolutely love this. There are great characters, great ideas, weird, kooky stuff going on, and some really good dialogue. Am I about to do a full rewatch of Buffy? No, probably not. But now that I know that it's on Disney, I think it's Disney, it is something I'm going to dip into a lot more. I found that Frontline was on Netflix, which was a comedy series done by a group called Working Dog here in Australia that satirised current affairs shows in the early 90s. And I've watched a few of those, and they are brilliant. They are still absolutely brilliant. I think the best best stuff that group has done by far. Mm-hmm. In contrast, I discovered that Commander-in-Chief was on Disney+. Plus. That is a series that uh, was kind of sailing in the shadow of the West Wing phenomenon at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it kind of was looking at the idea that Hillary Clinton may be coming down the, the highway as president in a couple of years' time. Right. And it, so it, it had Gina Davis as the president of the United States. And it's terrible. Oh, really? It really is trying to be good. And there are so many episodes where you can see 
what it wants to do, but it's just really, really off kilter. And it's got Donald Sutherland as the 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 baddie of the series, and it's it's almost very sort of like Transformers in that way that like every episode the baddie has to come along and he has to you know go up against the president. Oh, he's lost again, you know, rather than just <laughs> sort of coming back every now and then, you know, sort of when required. And they sort of you know, and and there's lots of like, oh, we've put the president in an impossible situation, but oh look what he's pulled out of the the you know right of the hat this time, just out of nowhere and. There are moments when they're like, we're going to be really, really soapy and talk about what her teenage kids are doing and how her son's mm-hmm. trying to get laid in the Oval Office. And oh, then God. there are times like, no, we're actually a really serious show about politics and the kids can be off. Like, it just doesn't know what it's doing. And it, How many it, eps a season? Uh, well, it only it got cancelled two-thirds oh. of the way through the first season. Oh, I see. I see. So, uh, so, look, I remember watching it at the time. I did, I did sort of get through it sort of going, this wants to be the West Wing and it's not. Because my, my thought was, oh, if this is like 24 eps a season, I can see why the storylines might flip-flop like that. Because the longer a season, you do get different writers coming in doing wildly different things. I thought that might have been it. But if it didn't make it to the end of the season, oh, Christ. No, it really does feel like one of those shows that knows it's not quite working but can't quite work out how to fix it and just right. throws different things at the audience and hopes that something will stick. And it's it's interesting to watch again, but I did sort of watched and go, no, this actually wasn't great. Now, Rob, while we've been talking and speaking of Batman, the bat alert has gone off on my computer here. Apparently you have some incoming emails. (laughs) I do. On Twitter, I've been contacted by Chris Love, who tweets at at Van Hell Song. So hello, Chris. Thank you for your very timely uh, note. Now, Dave, you've not heard this, but I think you, you'll really enjoy responding to it. So let me just read it and uh, you can have at it. How about that? Yeah, go on. A, a hot take from a listener. Yeah. Hi, guys. Really enjoy your show. And good the start. recent Yeah, very good start, Chris. Uh, and the recent episode about Andor was a real highlight. I was one of those who thought the first two eps were decent, but not compelling. Just watched the rest over this weekend when I was homebound due to COVID, snow, and the missus being away. I just wanted to ask whether you thought there was an overt, let's make a high-budget Blake 7 about the show. I also noted the seven rebels on Aldani and how seven is repeated in the prison workroom. I hadn't clocked that the other escapee was also in Rogue One, thought he had a very early Vila Arco vibe. And that's from Chris Love. That's a really cool email. Thanks for sending that in, Chris. Had I clocked the things you had? No. But as you say them, they do make sense. Now, look, Rob and I both independently, as we mentioned in our podcast, as we watched Ander have gone, there are definite Blake 7 vibes here. So I wouldn't be shocked if there was some influence of the show in there. I think I think it's the first show since Firefly where I've thought this is a really Blake 7 sort of thing and, and I wouldn't be shocked if the, the creators had watched it. So yeah, I, I totally get that. But that 7 thing, no, I hadn't noticed. And I hadn't realised that the, the chap in the prison was from Rogue One. I've, I've said to myself I need to re-watch Rogue One now that I've seen Andor. And in fact, I might even re-watch the whole of Andor and then go into Rogue One um, and then probably watch Star Wars after that because why not? Yeah, exactly right. Tony Gilroy, who does Andor... He was the guy who originally came in to do the rewrites and reshoots on Rogue One when we know that Rogue One wasn't quite working out. Tony's the guy who came in and did that. So he was he was right. the nat- he was the natural guy to come in and do uh, Andor. 
he's American, but we know that American writers, sci-fi guys, especially the older types, and I think Anthony Gilroy might be in his mid-60s, like JMS, who we've talked about in the past, knowing Doctor Who and stuff, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that Tony Gilroy could know Blake Seven. I really think that's possible. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, we know for a fact that JMS cited Blake Seven as an influence on Babylon 5. And I think you're right, his generation of writers did see a lot of those sort of shows. It it reminds me of when Kevin Smith had the showrunner of The Flash on his podcast a number of years ago now, and the, the, the guy said, oh, you know, I was a big Doctor Who fan growing up. And I thought, yeah, 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 you're just paying lip service. And he said, no, for example, Robert Holmes was a really good writer. Stuff like Caves of Androzani was really influential. <laughs> I thought, okay, you're a, you're a proper fan. You know, you've, you've dropped a couple of really good genuine references there. So yeah. I, I think you're right. We do kind of underestimate how much of an influence those sort of PBS broadcast of British sci-fi did have in America. So, yeah, it, look, I don't have the answer, but it's it's absolutely more possible than I think we appreciate it could have been. Yeah, as we said on the Andor episode, well, as I said to you, the reason I brought up Blake Seven originally is because I did count seven of them on Aldani, um, <laughs> and there was that, but I didn't realise it was the same in the prison as well. So that repeated motif, yeah, might be more than a coincidence. No, yeah, look, that's that's really cool, and um, yeah, I, as as we said, I'm literally hearing that lie for the first time, and so I haven't had time to process it any more than I've I've said. But I, I think it's encouraged me that I do need to give Andor a uh, a rewatch as well over the summer, and then go into Rogue One. Yeah, definitely, it's so good. Excellent. So look, that's been our episode. As is traditional in the Doctor Who show world, in January we are giving Rob a month off Mm -hmm. and I will be hosting our friends from 42 to Doomsday and Spacefall for something. I think we've we've got as far as coordinating our diaries to get them all in the one place at the one time and we'll uh, we'll do something podcast of decision vibey, I think, for January. So that will be a a fun as live episode. Mm -hmm. And then we'll be back for our normal run in twenty twenty. Yeah, so this is your last episode for the year here, Dave. You're packing up and going home, but I'll be back in the Primary Sources special on Christmas Day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so listeners, you get to hear from me one last time, whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. Uh, But uh, Dave, that means I should be saying to you right now, Merry Christmas. I hope you have a really good break. No, thank you, Rob. I hope you do as well. I've got a couple of quiet weeks off. Uh, And then I'm off to Queensland for a week. And I haven't been to Queensland for a holiday in about 15 years. Is that right? Oh. I've been up to to Brisbane for work-related things when I was in the Air Force and went up to Amberley or or Townsville a couple of times. But I haven't just been to, to Queensland for a holiday and to see friends for a very long time. So, um... I could just be sitting on a beach in Queensland by the time you're you're dropping stuff. Very nice. Southern or northern Queensland? Uh, southern. Oh, so that'll be really great, Dave. Lovely, lovely. Yeah, so look to you to you and your wife, a Merry Christmas. To listeners, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I hope you've enjoyed our content for twenty twenty two and you'll hear from Rob again. But yeah, we'll be back in twenty twenty three. I hope we'll uh, I hope you'll join us again. Yeah, our eighth year of the series coming up. And we haven't missed an episode. And we haven't missed an episode. We don't often pat ourselves on the back, but um, I, I did realise when we were desperately trying to schedule our uh, season 15 episode around my work commitments that we haven't missed an episode. We've, we've dropped uh, every episode on on time, on budget, so to speak. And um, yes. 
yeah, look, I think we can be rightly proud of that. But look, enough praise of ourselves. We don't like to talk about ourselves. Hope you've enjoyed the episode. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Speak soon. Bye now. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Top Two Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Top Two Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net.